Okay, so uh, I think these four weeks have been spread out over six, maybe, so I'm going to do a, a quick review of the first three weeks. Uh, but before I do, um, Dan and Randy and I were discussing in our sort of teaching critique this past week uh, that this could be, adult Sunday school could be more of an interactive form than we typically make, typically make it. Uh, and this is something we actually used to do uh, when we were in the old fellowship hall some, but then when we started recording and posting online, we moved away from interaction because we didn't have a handheld mic in there uh, to catch audience interaction. So I'm going to just give it a trial run today, and I asked Wendell to have a handheld mic ready. So uh, at different points, I'll kind of prompt you guys to ask any questions, make any comments, uh, and if you just find yourself wanting to raise your hand in the middle of things, go, and, go ahead and do that too, and I'll ask Wendell to, to bring you the mic. So we'll just sort of wing it and see how that goes today. Hopefully we'll be able to capture everything on uh, the recording. <clears throat> so now, by way of review, uh, and you have sort of the outline for the whole series there on your notes, let me briefly mention where we've been so far. Uh, and uh, if you want to go back and listen, all of those previous weeks are on the app and on our website, cbcfortworth.org slash sermons. Uh, in week one, back on March 28th, I started us out looking at God's forgiveness and our curse, since that's where the Bible starts in terms of our need for forgiveness. Uh, God had promised death if we disobeyed, and that death, along with the rest of the curses for disobedience, has been an ever-present part of our reality since the fall. Uh, and within that, we looked at uh, the reality of God's forgiveness in that context, the context of death and curse, specifically how what we deserved, God's damning curse and our eternal death that we had earned, the death and curse we deserved was transferred to Jesus so that we could know nothing but God's smile, God's blessing. So that was week one, God's forgiveness and our, and our curse. Then in week two, Randy uh, took us through another facet of God's forgiveness that not only does the Bible speak of our deserved condemnation and death under curse, it also speaks extensively of our guilt or our unpayable sin debt. Uh, we owed an infinite debt of guilt, and by God's forgiveness through Jesus, that guilt of debt is paid. Uh, our debt is paid in full. Uh, then last week, uh, Pastor Randy taught us again about how God's forgiveness releases us from another aspect of our plight. Not only did the fall leave us subject to curse and an unpayable sin debt, the fall also left us subject to the hard yoke of sin. Every last person, apart from the salvation of Jesus, is hopelessly slaved, enslaved, under the complete domination of sin's power. And so the third aspect of God's gracious forgiveness is that He frees us, not fully, but truly. In this life, once we are born again, God frees us from sin's enslavement. Now, this doesn't mean that we never sin again, but it does mean that we now have the spiritual life and spiritual capacity to walk in righteousness, to resist temptation, to put our sin to death, and to not be constantly overpowered by sin, such that sin is no longer our master because God has redeemed us to himself, making us his slaves, slaves of righteousness. So I hope with all of that, with those first three weeks of this focus on God's forgiveness, that you've been able to meditate some on these things in recent weeks and that you have a greater sense of the depth and riches of God's forgiveness that we enjoy as his adopted children. Uh, as I mentioned in week one, as we fill our hearts with these truths, they should fill our sails, so to speak, for faithful and joyful endurance. 
the glory of God's goodness and power and kindness and these things relating to his forgiveness should enlarge our hearts so that we're motivated to run in his ways. So, with those three weeks that we've covered, with as great as these things are, what else could be left uh, to talk about in terms of the glory of God's forgiveness? Um, And I think the truth is, at least in terms of broad strokes, we've pretty much covered the major aspects of God's forgiveness as it relates to our present experience in this life. But, as we all know, our experience in this life is not all there is to our experience of God's forgiveness. Uh, Now, I say we all know that, but I think it's fair to say that we have a tendency uh, to focus on what has already been accomplished at the cross, uh, even to the neglect of the future glories uh, associated mostly with Christ's second coming. Uh, And I've noted this on the handout as the key idea for today that we tend to focus on the cross and what it has already accomplished to the exclusion of future glories, and that correcting this imbalance will increase our hope, our joy, and our purity. Uh, As you can see, if you look at the footnote on that front page, uh, I've been helped a great deal this week by this little book, uh, Coming Events and Present Duties by J.C. Ryle. Uh, And in case you're interested, uh, this little book is in the public domain. The link at the bottom of the notes Uh, will get you access to this book digitally for free. Um, So we want to try to correct that imbalance today, to get ourselves to consider the future glories alongside uh, what we've considered already, what has already been accomplished. Uh, And as I thought about how to organize the the lesson, what categories to choose to put our, our future hope in relative to God's forgiveness, it occurred to me we can use the same categories we've already been through, and for various reasons actually put them in opposite order Uh, of the order in which we've gone through them already. So you see there, number one, our future with regard to sin. Number two, our future with regard to guilt. And then finally, our future with regard to curse. Uh, So first, number one, our future with regard to sin. Ever since the fall, uh, every man, woman, and child on earth, and this is as we learned last week, uh, every man, woman, and child on earth has had the experience of being a sinner. And in that respect, every one of us is unable to stand in the unmediated presence of God because we are sinners. Now, as we sang a few minutes ago, there's still something present in our experience that can be an occasion for weariness or even discouragement. And if you want to look at the second verse there of that hymn we sang, so weary of our traitorous flesh, of sin we hate yet crave, we yearn to see temptation's death indwelling sin's dark grave. Now, while it is gloriously true that sin's dominion has been broken at the cross, that that we who have trusted Jesus have had sin's yoke replaced with Jesus' yoke, like I said a minute ago, this doesn't mean that we never sin again. Quite the contrary. Believers find ourselves regularly enticed and even participating in the things of the flesh that we lust after. So it's completely appropriate that we would groan in words like those from that hymn. Now, the main reason I put this first in the outline for for today is this. Of the aspects of our future hope that are connected with God's forgiveness, the complete removal of sin, the complete removal of sin from our experience is the first of these aspects that we can look forward to experiencing. Uh, As Moses says in Psalm 90, our time on this earth is short. He says they contain 70, or if due to strength, 80 years. Now think about that. 
Many of us in this room uh, are more than halfway there, and I count myself in that number. I'm almost 41. Uh, so many of us are ha- more than halfway to the typical lifespan that Moses gives. Uh, and even with the progress of modern medicine, 70 or 80 years is still very much what's typical. So what does that mean? Well, as Moses is emphasizing in Psalm 90, 70 or 80 years is not very long. Our time in this life is so short that it can be likened in verses 5 and 6 of Psalm 90 to grass that sprouts in the morning just to fade and wither by the evening. So how does this fleetingness and shortness of our years connect with our experience of sin? In this, when we die... When we die, we will experience this part of what we long for. We will finally be completely free from sin. Perhaps you've come to love Sovereign Grace's new verse for Come Thou Fount as much as I have for this reason. Oh, that day when freed from sinning, I shall see thy lovely face, full arrayed in blood-washed linen, how I'll sing thy sovereign grace. Now, as glorious as it is that as God's children we have been freed from sin's complete dominion, it is all the more glorious that we look forward to the total freedom of being completely sinless. This is one of the truths of God's forgiveness of which we must be mindful with regard to our future hope, especially when we find ourselves groaning and burdened because we see sin and its effects in our experience, especially repeatedly in our own hearts. And this should push us with a mixture of gratitude and longing for that day. Paul expresses this hope in 2 Corinthians 5. He says this, For indeed, in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked. For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed, so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Similarly, Uh, John writes this in 1 John 3. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us, because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God. And what what John's pointing to with that first part is that we're not what we were before. We have been rescued from that enslaving power of sin. And so the world doesn't know us now because we don't look like that anymore. We look more like God. But something future is coming. He continues, We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And now here is uh, one of those points that's made biblically in terms of why it's good for us to focus our minds on these things. He says, Everyone who has this hope fixed on him, that hope of seeing him face to face and being completely without sin at that point, Everyone who has his hope, this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Now, admittedly, most of the texts that speak of this moment, uh, these realities, including these two from Paul and John, have in view our future glorification, uh, when not only will we be, we be made sinless, but we will also receive resurrection bodies, uh, which is not something that happens as soon as we die. However, There are other texts that indicate that the moment of our death becomes the moment of our glorification in this one sense, that we experience the very moment we die, the full joy of sinlessness in Christ's presence. Um, So, I won't go through every example listed in the outline, but here are just a few. 
Um, a few verses later from where I was reading in 2 Corinthians 5, in verse 8, Paul says that to be absent from the body, uh, which he's talking about the intermediate state after death, but awaiting resurrection, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Uh, similarly, he says in Philippians 1 that he feels torn between his desire to stay and minister on earth and his desire to depart and be with Christ, for he says that is very much better. Uh, and then another example in the New Testament, Jesus says to the thief on the cross, who had just repented and professed faith in him, these were his words, truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Uh, and then just one from the Old Testament. David concludes in Psalm 17, uh, beginning with verse 13, that he is encouraged by this reality in the midst of his earthly suffering. He says this, Deliver my soul from the wicked with your sword, from men with your hand, O Yahweh, from men of the world whose portion is in this life, and whose belly you fill with your treasure. They are satisfied with children and leave their abundance to their babes. Now, notice the contrast between that, men who are satisfied in this life with this condition and the, the gifts that are of this life, and then David. He says, as for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. I will be satisfied with your likeness when I awake. So that's what's sustaining David uh, in the midst of bearing um, unjust treatment from people in the world. David's hope is in what his experience will be, like John says, when he sees God face to face after he dies. Uh, and so this is the great hope of God's people throughout the ages. And if you have trusted Christ, this future glory, glorious reality is coming quickly for you. Your years in this earthly tent in which you groan under the experience of sin, whether they're closer to the 70 or 80 years that Moses talks about, or you're almost done, uh, either way, these years will be gone before you know it, and you will be restored to the life-giving presence of your Holy Father, and you will be perfectly holy with His righteousness so that you can be in His presence forever. Uh, so that's the first aspect of God's forgiveness with regard to our future, the complete removal of sin, which happens the moment we die. Uh, and now let me pause and give you an opportunity to ask any questions or make any comments. And if you would, raise your hand and I'll have Wendell bring you the mic. If you end up not asking any questions, I may prompt you to later. I won't make you now. <laughs> All right. Well, let's continue then. Moving on to number two, our future with regard to guilt. Uh, again, as we learned in week two of this series, the guilt has been removed and the sin debt has been paid for every believer through the death of Jesus. But as with our experience of sin, even as believers, we still have some experience of the guilt and debt of sin as we live out our lives on earth. And this, as you might imagine, is because we have the experience of continuing to sin. Uh, now, as uh, I talked about a few weeks ago from Genesis, ever since the fall, we've had this urge to cover our own sin, and this is an urge to which we are still subject, but as believers, we have God's inspired means of seeing that our sin is covered, and that's coming to him daily, repeatedly, for his fatherly forgiveness. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we have this ongoing need that we experience to continue to deal with our guilt. And as with our sin, the moment we see him, that experience is gone for us forever. 
So that's the first aspect of uh, our future with regard to our guilt, is that our own guilt will forever be gone from our experience at that moment, which again is coming soon for each of us when we see him face to face. Uh, However, uh, and how did I divide this up? Uh, Letter B, the guilt of others, uh, especially those who've sinned against us. Uh, Our experience in the guilt and sin debt of others uh, is something that's significant to us, particularly when they've sinned against us. And our desire for God's justice to make these things right uh, is part of our experience, or at least it should be. You see this a lot in the Psalms, uh, the, the longing and the crying out for justice. Uh, the Bible teaches that these things will not be fully dealt with until sometime in the future. And I'm going to ask you here to turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 6. Revelation 6. And we're going to read beginning with verse 9. Revelation 6 verse 9. When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And there was given to each of them a white robe, and they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed even as they had been would be completed also. I'm not going to try to give a full explanation of everything that's going on in this text, but I want you to notice a few things. First, notice that those who are crying out here are martyrs. These are Christians who have been faithful even unto death. So they've experienced that moment that we were talking about a moment ago of seeing God face to face and having their sin completely removed. Secondly, these faithful Christians do not yet have resurrection bodies. John refers to seeing their souls. And so again, they're in the intermediate state uh, between death and full glorification. Thirdly, Notice that they are enjoying rest and righteousness. They have been given, uh, given to clothe themselves in perfect righteousness. Uh, so there's just some further evidence that the moment we see him, we, we experience the perfect righteousness of God, holy even as he is holy. Fourthly, though, these uh, saints in this intermediate state are longing for justice. Although they are enjoying the rest and the sinlessness of those forgiven by God, there is still a longing present within them. Even after they've died and entered paradise, they still have this longing to see guilt, the guilt and sin debt of those who have sinned against them brought to justice by God, the ultimate judge. Uh, and then a final observation, they are told that they must wait. Even though they've died and these saints have actually experienced martyrdom in the context of the tribulation, the judgment that is promised against God's enemies at this point still has not been accomplished. They, they still have to wait for it. Uh, Now, bear with me for a minute. I want to switch gears uh, a little bit. In order to finish out this point and the next one, I want to make us think a little bit further about the key thought uh, just above the outline. As I said there, we tend to focus on the cross and what what it has already accomplished, uh, sometimes to the exclusion of Christ's future glories. Uh, And this is one place especially where I found some helpful things from J.C. Ryle as I studied this past week. And here I'm going to quote him at length because I think what he says really helps to frame our tendency here in contrast with what was actually the opposite tendency among God's Old Testament people. So listen to what Ryle says. If the Jew thought too exclusively of Christ reigning, 
Has not the Gentile thought too exclusively of Christ's suffering? If the Jew could see nothing in Old Testament prophecy but Christ's exaltation and final power, has not the Gentile often seen nothing but Christ's humiliation and the preaching of the gospel? If the Jew dwelt too much on Christ's second advent, has not the Gentile dwelt too exclusively on the first? If the Jew ignored the cross, has not the Gentile ignored the crown? Uh, now, to help you, uh, to help you see that it's not just me and J.C. Ryle seeing these tendencies, I want us to look for a moment at a text of Scripture that I think demonstrates that we've deviated a little bit from where Jesus' disciples set their hope, uh, even following his resurrection. Open your Bibles, if you would, to Acts chapter 1. Acts 1. So in, in Luke's introduction to the book of Acts, he points in verse 1 to his first account, uh, which is Luke's gospel. He points to his gospel in which he had recorded the truths concerning Jesus' life and teaching all the way up to his ascension. Uh, and he says in verse 3 that that ascension took place after 40 days during which Jesus appeared to them and spoke of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Now you might think, if our faith is mostly a matter of looking backward to the cross, and mostly a matter of enjoying our freedom from curse, guilt, and enslavement on this side of the cross, like we focused on in our first three weeks, and if the kingdom of God is mostly a matter of those realities coming to bear in this life, in the church age, then that's probably what would have mostly comprised Jesus' teaching over those 40 days. He would have taught about those things. But notice what the disciples ask when Jesus gathers them together ahead of his ascension. In verse 6, he says this, or Luke says this, So when they had come together, they were asking him, asking Jesus, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? Now, again, Jesus has just been teaching them about the kingdom for 40 days. And so what it is should be fresh in their minds. And what are they thinking? They're clearly thinking in terms that would have been familiar to Old Testament believers. Although the Old Testament does paint a picture of a suffering Messiah, most clearly in a passage like Isaiah 53, it also presents a picture of the Messiah as a conquering political king. The Old Testament teaches pretty clearly that the Messiah would be the ultimate political king who would bring all of the world into submission to Yahweh. And clearly, that is what is on the disciples' mind at the end of the 40 days Jesus spent with them after his resurrection. You know, their experience of things is things are not perfect. We're expecting this Messiah to come and to restore everything on the earth, to make everything in submission to Yahweh. So is that going to happen at this time, is what they're asking. And notice in verse 7, Jesus' response. He doesn't correct them. He doesn't say, no, don't you get it? My kingdom isn't political, but spiritual. He doesn't say that. What does he say? He said to them, verse 7, it is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. You see, Jesus doesn't correct their assumption. They have the right assumption. Jesus' kingdom is a coming political reality under which all things will be made right and restored to how God always intended them to be. Let me say that again. Jesus' kingdom is a coming political reality under which all things will be made right and restored to how God always intended them to be. Now, why is it right that this should be something on which Jesus' disciples were setting their sights and hopes following Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection? And therefore, why should our hope be set on this thought of a coming kingdom? 
The reason, in essence, is because this is revealed as God's plan across the Testaments for fully carrying out his forgiving purposes towards mankind. And if you can see this, if we can, if we can like Ryle is saying, adjust this imbalance in our thinking, then it will open up all kinds of glory and future hope, again, from across the Scriptures. Now, let's go back to the sub-point uh, from which we've deviated for a minute. Our future with regard to the guilt of others, uh, especially with regard to unrepentant sin against us. What I noted is a desire that we should have and that we see evidence in the Psalms especially, uh, and there in Revelation 6 as we read also, is that God's justice would be carried out against his enemies. This is a longing that will be met with God's judgment and with his righteous rule and reign when Jesus one day sits on his earthly throne. This reality is what is told of, uh, among many other places, in Psalm 2. And I'm going to read verses 7 to 12. I will surely tell of the decree of Yahweh. He said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now, therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship Yahweh with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, that he not become angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. So this text in Psalm 2 and others like it tell us of the day of Jesus' coming earthly reign, during which he will deal righteously with his enemies, and God's justice will rule over the earth taking vengeance on everyone, but especially on earthly authorities uh, who will not bend the knee to him. During Jesus' earthly reign, the longing of every heart for justice, like we see uh, exemplified in those words in in Revelation 6, that longing of every heart for justice to fully and finally be brought to bear will finally begin to be met. Um, And I say it'll begin to be met at that point because the Bible represents this as a process during which Jesus will extend his righteous rule, uh, kind of in a way that is the mirror opposite of the process in which uh, things went from the fall to as bad as they were in uh, Genesis 6, and then all of the results of the corruption of creation that we see bringing shorter and shorter lifespans in the Old Testament. Uh, In the same way that that stuff was gradual and progressive after the fall, Uh, the realities of the coming glory of the kingdom and what that's going to do to bring in the eternal state are going to be gradual also. So, uh, you may have sort of sensed that's kind of a nutshell uh, view of all these things, Uh, and we will have a little bit more to unpack when we come to our next point. Uh, But I want us to consider the implications of these things for a moment, and again, I'm going to quote from J.C. Ryle here. He says this, Know these things clearly, and then you will not be confounded and surprised by the continuance of immense evils in the world. Wars and tumults and oppression and dishonesty and selfishness and covetousness and superstition and bad government and abounding heresies will not appear to you unaccountable. You will not sink down into a morbid, misanthropic condition of mind when you see laws and reforms and education not making mankind perfect. You will not relapse into a state of apathy and disgust when you see churches full of imperfections and theologians making mistakes. 
you will say to yourself, the time of Christ's power has not yet arrived. The devil is still working among his children and sowing darkness and division broadcast among the saints. The true king is yet to come. Now, did you notice how relevant Ryle's list is there? It is so eminently possible for us to be discouraged to see things like this. Discontent with the government probably has never been at a greater high than it is now, especially in light of misplaced hope that the government could make things better. Discontent with the educational system, discontent and discouragement with every kind of moral failure all around us, even in the church, seemingly no less and maybe more than at any other time in history. So where are we to turn our eyes when our experience, even as those who have believed in Christ crucified, where do we look when our experience is so full of disappointment in the faithlessness and misery we see all around us? The answer is we turn our eyes and our hearts to this promise of the future, that the perfect king will come in judgment and he will make all things perfectly right. That is our future with regard to guilt. So that's the end of uh, number two. Any questions on all of that? Comments? Wendell, have the microphone ready. Got a couple over here. On the far side, Wendell. A lot of the postmodels I talked to say, you know, Christ went up to the Father said, uh, all authority has been given, all authority in heaven and earth has given to me, and he's at the right hand of the Father. So what is he doing up there? Is he ruling as the sovereign God right now, or is he doing the will, or is it like, and I think Psalm 110 where it says, sit at my right hand while I make all your enemies your footstool. So he's waiting for the Father to gather the kingdom? or I don't... Yeah. So uh, I found this helpful in Ryle, and it's a thought that I've had before. Um, kind of uh, uh, analogous to that is how David was anointed king so long before he took his throne, and so much of his experience was in the wilderness. And Ryle does a really good job. There's a chapter in particular I noted at the bottom of the notes there. Uh, sort of drawing on that to talk about how, yes, all authority, and you have to make a distinction between the fact that there has never been a, a maverick molecule in the universe, uh, so, so nothing is outside of Jesus' control. Jesus is God, has always been God, but that reality of reversing the curse and bringing his authority to bear on the creation, that's still waiting for that day of his kingdom. Okay. That makes sense? Yeah. Andy? Oh, you didn't. Oh, you were pointing to Frederick. Ken. It's coming. Yeah, there's this um, tension between wanting justice and then praying for your enemy. And you want to reconcile that. Have any thoughts? Yeah, absolutely. So, how is justice served against the sin? in the case of those who repent? Shout it out. Poured out on Christ. Yeah, so I think even the answer to imprecatory prayers uh, is found sometimes in their repentance and the fact that their guilt and the, the penalty of their guilt is put on Jesus. But if it's not, then they will bear that guilt and its punishment for all eternity. All right, well, thank you for the interaction. We'll have to see how that comes out on the recording <laughs> and if we do this again. All right, number three, our future with regard to curse. 
Uh, now, this point I'm going to try to cover in two very different ways, and we're going to see if we have time uh, to get all the way through this. If we don't, then I'll give you some direction for how to finish it yourselves. Uh, first, more narrowly, I want to draw your attention to the issue of physical health and wellness. Uh, turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 7. Deuteronomy 7. And we're going to pick up with verse 12. This is in the context of the restatement of the law to the generation that was about to enter the promised land. And these are the blessings, this, this, this section of text is among the blessings that God's people Israel could expect as they obeyed his righteous law as his chosen people. Uh, it says this, Then it shall come about, because you listen to these judgments and keep and do them, that Yahweh your God will keep with you his covenant and his loving kindness, which he swore to your forefathers. So that kind of frames this. And then we see in verse 15, Yahweh will remove from you all sickness, and he will not put on you any of the harmful diseases of Egypt, which you have known, but he will lay them on all who hate you. So here we have, and this isn't the only one, you see a bunch of cross-references in your notes there that I'm not going to go over. But here's a clear indication that physical sickness, disease, physical unwellness, these things are in the world because of sin. And God's intention is to move them, remove them from Israel as Israel obeys his law. Now, as with the other blessings promised, this one would be first to Israel, and then as they are redeemed, Israel would, would mediate this goodness and blessing to the whole world. But of course, as we saw several weeks ago, with few exceptions, Israel ended up mediating curse to the whole world rather than blessing. Now, the point I want you to see here is that God is still pursuing that original plan. In fact, it never faltered. In Jeremiah chapter 33, following many pronouncements of judgment against Israel on the basis of the law they failed to fulfill, uh, but then also following the promises of the new covenant, we read in verse 6, uh, and this is in the context of final restoration for Israel and for Judah. He says, Behold, I will bring to it health and healing, and I will heal them, and I will reveal to them an abundance of peace and truth. And then this in verse 9, uh, he says, It will be to me a name of joy, praise, and glory before all the nations of the earth, which will hear of all the good I do for them. So this isn't ultimately just to Israel. This is to all the nations through Israel. Uh, and then in verses 14 and 15, we see the means. Behold, days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will fulfill the good word which I have spoken concerning the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch of David to spring forth, and he shall execute justice and righteousness on the earth. Now, something to point out here. Uh, and this will be relevant uh, as we go along, is, and you, you may have heard this before, that a lot of times when we see prophetic passages, uh, there's a near and a far in view. And if you imagine like coming up on a mountain range, you can see two mountains that look like they're pretty close together. But as you get closer, you realize there's a huge chasm or valley between the two. Well, in a text like this, there are realities like, when did the Messiah come? 2,000 years ago, right? Well, when is the healing going to take place that's in view? not until the kingdom. So that's not necessarily clear from what Jeremiah says here, but we see it from where we sit, that there's a huge chasm or valley between the two. So, uh, so that's the answer. The answer is the Messiah in terms of how this healing 
is going to be brought about. You see in, in, in Jeremiah 33, those promises, like I said, haven't uh, stopped or, or even been halted or temporary, temporarily delayed. This is all God's perfect plan that continues to work itself out. And this is part of why when Jesus shows up, John the Baptist makes such a big deal about Jesus' arrival, saying, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Uh, and then later, when John sends his men to inquire of Jesus from prison as to whether Jesus was actually the promised king, the branch of David, like, like Jeremiah says, do you remember what Jesus points to in response? He points to his healing ministry. It says, when the men came to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you to ask, are you the expected one or do we look for someone else? At that very time, he cured many people of diseases and afflictions and evil spirits, and he gave sight to many who were blind. And he answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have the gospel preached to them. So as far as Jesus was concerned, and this was convincing proof to John also, the proof that Jesus was the promised king was that he brought the promised healing. Now, why do I bring this up? Well, again, because disease and sickness are in the world because of sin. Because of the curse, and that's the overarching point here, the curse that is due to our sin. And we have these promises to Israel that flow throughout the Old Testament, that as they obeyed, these effects of curse would be reversed for them and then through them. Uh, but as we saw... Uh, in week one, there was something else at work in God's plan. Uh, although the Messiah showed up and did bring a measure of this promised healing, God's people, Israel, needed to fill up the measure of their sin by rejecting their Messiah. Thereby, they fulfilled their rebellion and made it necessary for their king to hang on a tree so that their curse could be removed according to law's stipulations. And so according to God's plan, with Israel hardened in the rejection of their king, Jesus ascended. So the king left for an undisclosed period of time, during which time he is bringing in the full number of the Gentiles as his bride to make Israel jealous. And what went with the king, other than for a brief period of confirmatory evidence in the apostles' ministry? The healing. So Jesus came near and brought the healing, and then he left for this undisclosed period of time, and the healing went with him. Now, part of the reason I bring this up is because physical health and well-being is such a huge issue for us. It's such a huge issue that an entire world has been deceived and exploited by false teachers who promise healing and take the sick and suffering for every dime they can squeeze out of them. And that's not the only manifestation of misplaced hope in this area. We aren't exempt from this. We tend to place a huge emphasis on physical health and well-being and comfort. And as I was thinking about this, I just thought exhibit A, the coronavirus, and the response not only in the world but in the church. We, we really fear physical unwellness and value physical wellness. And as good a gift as modern medicine is, and for that matter, as good a gift as homeopathy and diet and exercise and other health solutions may be, these things do not in any way, shape, or form represent the healing that is promised through the Messiah. That healing, along with the other reversals and removals of curse, are promised to come with the coming kingdom. The coming kingdom in which Jesus will return in person to exercise his righteous rule 
as the perfect human king, the ideal Davidic king, during his millennial reign on earth. So that is the more narrow sub-point here. Uh, the second one is this. Through his coming earthly kingdom, King Jesus will reverse and remove everything pertaining to curse until all anyone on earth knows is an even purer and fuller and more perfect joy than the one that existed in Eden. Um, and as I said earlier, that's something he's going to do uh, gradually and progressively when he takes his throne on the earth. Now, as I thought about how to go into some explanation of this, I kind of went around and around uh, until I finally decided that uh, my words would not be the best to use um, for a number of reasons. These things are just so glorious. Uh, I was talking with Randy uh, just a few minutes ago about how um, kind of like the Old Testament saints had revelations of Jesus' ministry, both in his first and second coming, but it was, it was not totally clear to them, not as clear as it is to us now. We look forward to these things, and like Dan likes to say, even more in this case than usual, words are going to creak and groan, I think, under the weight of these glories. And so what I intend to do, and I think I have time to, to read at least a few of these, uh, is I want to uh, simply read to you the Bible's accounts, a few of them, of what this coming reality is going to look like. Uh, now keep in mind, um, I mentioned sort of the near and far view of the, the future mountains that are in view here. Uh, that happens kind of like it does with the first and second comings. It happens in these texts with regard to the future kingdom, which is the thousand years during which these things will gradually take place, and the eternal state at which point the decisive end of sin and judgment of sin for all eternity will take place and lead into the eternal state. So those sort of two mountains are in view in ways in some of these texts that aren't real clearly distinguished, at least not immediately. So keep that in mind as I read through some of these. And feel free to turn uh, to these texts. I'll give you the citation, but I'm not going to wait too long because we're running out of time. Uh, Isaiah 11, verses 1 to 9. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of Yahweh will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of Yahweh, and he will delight in the fear of Yahweh, and he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. And so you see here the reality, there's still wicked operating in the earth when this is taking place, but he's bringing his righteousness perfectly and thoroughly to bear against it to subdue it. Verse 5, also righteousness will be the belt about his loins, and faithfulness the belt about his waist. And, and here you see the uh, reversal of things that took place after the curse. And the wolf will dwell with the lamb. So bloodshed and death, even for animals, didn't enter until after the fall. And so animals that have become at enmity with each other after the fall will be restored to peace with one another during the kingdom. So the wolf will dwell with the lamb, and the leopard will, will lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little boy will lead them. Also the cow and the bear will graze, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. 
So that's something that's physiologically not a way for a lion to be sustained now, but it will be in the kingdom. The nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra. And what's a cobra? A snake, right? So reversal of that enmity that's put in place. And of course, the cobra here is not standing for Satan, but the, the snake in the experience of man is representative in our hostility towards the snake of what happened in the garden. And the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. So sort of the same truth repeated twice there for emphasis. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of Yahweh as the waters cover the sea. So this earth on which we live, this peace and this reign and rule of justice will expand over the whole earth. Um, I'm going to do just one more here for the sake of time, but to minister to your hearts, I encourage you to go and read later the rest of the text here. I'm going to go to Isaiah 65, verses 17 to 25. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem for rejoicing and her people for gladness. I will also rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. And there will no longer be heard in her the voice of weeping and the sound of crying. So all of this is, is in answer to the longings of the saints across the years, across the centuries, uh, to finally and fully redeem and put at peace the people of God, beginning with Israel. Uh, now, starting with verse 20, we see more specifically kingdom realities in which uh, the lifespan that had been shortened up till now gets reversed. No longer will there be in, in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his days. For the youth will die at the age of 100, and the bone who does not reach the age, the, I'm sorry, the one who does not reach the age of 100 will be thought accursed. So the lifespans will go back uh, during the kingdom to what they were before the flood. They will build houses and inhabit them. They will also plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They will not build, another, they will not build in another inhabit. They will not plant and another eat. For as the lifetime of a tree, so will be the days of my people. And the cho my chosen ones will bear out the work of their hand, will wear out the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain or build ch bear children for calamity. They are the offspring of those blessed by Yahweh and their descendants with them. It will also come to pass that before they call, I will answer. And while they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will graze together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. And the dust will be the serpent's food. They will do no evil or harm in all my holy mountain, says Yahweh. Uh, and just one more thing to point to. This is in the Revelation text that I'm not going to take the time to read. But uh, it talks there about the tree of life being, again, a reality, uh, and that the, 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 the leaves of the tree will be for the healing of the nations. So these promises, including that promise of eternal healing, are yet to come through this reality ushered in by the kingdom and completely fulfilled in the eternal state. So, and we didn't hear all the text, but in the text you've just heard, God has told you about the ultimate implications of his glorious forgiveness. When he put his own son on the cross as the king of his enemy people, and on his son he poured out all of his wrath against his people's sin, he made the way for this ultimate eternal reality 
to unfold. And brothers and sisters, it is unfolding even as we live and breathe and even as I stand here talking to you. Nothing has ever thwarted these plans and they are perfectly coming to pass. So hopefully, uh, everything that we've looked at this morning has taught us to have a forward-looking faith. Uh, For us to have a forward-looking faith is so important to our hope. And there's a number of scriptures at the bottom of the outline there to bear that out. I won't get into them, but again, for the ministry uh, to your own souls, I would encourage you to look at those. Uh, I want to read one more uh, excerpt from Ryle uh, about these things. He says this, Know these things clearly, and then you will be often looking for the coming of the day of God. You will regard the second advent as a glorious and comfortable truth around which your best hopes will all be clustered. You will not merely think of Christ crucified, but you will think also of Christ coming again. You will long for the days of refreshing and the manifestation of the sons of God. And that's what it says in Romans 8, the whole creation is looking forward to that. You will find peace in looking back to the cross, and you will find joyful hope in looking forward to the kingdom. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for these truths and pray that you would seal your word to our hearts, this word of hope, these words of promise. Father, that our joy would be inescapable and full of glory because you have accomplished these things, are accomplishing them, and will accomplish them perfectly in accordance with everything that you've promised. Uh, Father, I pray that you would help us to go out from here with joy, that we would uh, go down the hall or stay in this room and be ready to worship you in spirit and in truth, because you are the glorious King. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, I didn't leave uh, time.